Okay. Good morning, everybody. Morning. Nice to see you. All looking very good this morning. Um, my name's Mike. Uh, I'm going to be continuing our current series this morning, which we've entitled Centered. Uh, over recent weeks, we've basically been looking at the fact that, to be honest, for most of us, life is pretty busy, isn't it? There's just so much going on. There's work demands and family demands and social life demands and study demands and all sorts of things. Loads to fit in. Life's full. And actually, to be honest, if, you, if you're not busy, you feel like you kind of ought to be. Because everyone wears their business as like a badge of honor. And so if they're saying how busy they are, you're just going to keep quiet. Uh, life's full. Life's busy. And to be honest, we, what we've been discovering is that God, in the context of that busyness, wants to grab our attention and invite us to a life that's so much more sustainable, so much more enjoyable than just endless busyness for the sake of busyness. He invites us to enjoy a life centered on him. You'll keep hearing this buzzword centered at the moment. It's about putting Jesus at the very core of our lives, about having the God of love at the center of our lives in the midst of all our business, and it brings a whole new perspective to everything, a whole much more wonderful perspective. It's actually the life we were always designed for. And so we've been considering week on week, what does that actually look like? How do we practically have moments to pause, to center on him, and then to continue? Uh, and last week, Adrian looked at how we do that as a community together, when we, when we pause together and center on him together in worship, gatherings like this, and all that that might look like. And this morning was a very good practical demonstration of all that Adrian was talking about last week. Um, very unplanned. Um, this morning, I'm going to continue that theme, really pick that up, to talk about a very, very important, very powerful gift from God to us as a means to help us all together to center on him. And it involves food, which is one of my favorite topics. So I'm delighted to be preaching this morning. Uh, food makes up a huge part of our lives, doesn't it? There's an extent to which all of us have lives centered around food to one degree or another. Uh, we have to, to live. We all need food. Our body needs food. My favorite time of the day is, without doubt, dinner time. Dinner time is just a brilliant time of the day. What a fantastic... It's, it's even a good word, to be honest, dinner time. It's kind of a little bit musical. It's kind of tuneful, isn't it? So when you're telling someone it's time for dinner, you don't so much say it as you do sing it. It's like, dinner time! It kind of lends itself to this sustained note at the end, which grabs everyone's attention. Something's happening. It's dinner time! And it's just a great time of day. My favorite, closely followed by lunchtime and breakfast. Um, I just love food times. And so if I was in the Lord of the Rings, I'd probably be a hobbit. Because after first breakfast, I'm looking for second breakfast. And then elevens is, and then lunch and supper and dinner time and all that type of thing. Um, food's a big part of life. In fact, most of life's big celebrations involve food, don't they? So if it's someone's birthday, we say, great, let's have a big cake. Someone's getting married, we say, brilliant, let's have a banquet, and let's make them pay for it. <laughs> or if it's a, it's, you know, a baby gets born, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of being there for a few moments when the baby pops out, and everyone's gushy, and it's wonderful, and it's brilliant, and then no sooner have they popped out, than someone says, quick, feed it! And... <laughs> Let them know that it's, they've kind of arrived in a world of food. And really from that moment on, life gets centered around the feeding times of that little guzzler. Um, every three hours on the hour. Life centered around food. You name a celebration, I'll bet we'll put food at the center of it. Christmas, turkey mince pies. Easter, chocolate eggs. Shrove Tuesday, let's have a pancake. You know, That's coming up in Tuesday week, just so you know. Um, 
any excuse, homecomings, housewarmings, big achievements, reunions, anniversaries, celebrations, food nearly always features, nearly always does. It's a big part of life. So it's no surprise that God has designed for food to have a really big role, a central role in a life centered on him. The Bible has a lot to say about food. It's got many different roles within the scriptures. So it is a form of nourishment. Surprise, surprise. Jesus sees a crowd of 5,000 people, realizes they're going to get hungry, so feeds them to nourish them. But it's also much more than that. In, in the Bible, food represents friendship. So in Revelations 3.20, Jesus says that he stands at the door of our hearts and he knocks. And if anyone opens the door, he'll come in and he'll eat with them. It's a powerful sign of acceptance, of friendship. Uh, food in the Bible is also a moment to celebrate. So the prodigal son returns back to his father. The father throws a big feast because he's so glad about it. Food is also just there for pleasure as well, though. So Solomon, the son of King David, he, he had many riches. And the Bible tells us that he had foods of all types. And the Queen of Sheba, she was quite pleased about that. She enjoyed that. So it's a form of pleasure. So Jesus has ensured, therefore, that food will also be at the very center of our regular times of celebration as a community centered on him. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Now, I've got to just prepare you. We are going to look at many different parts of the Bible this morning to get a kind of sweep of what the Bible says about it. But we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 26. It will come from the screen. It says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here Paul is spelling out a very practical way that we are to center on God together whenever we gather together. And it involves sharing food. It's what we call communion, the Lord's Supper. Okay? And what I hope to do this morning is to for us to all gain a greater understanding that this is a huge gift of God to us. To understand that it's important. Actually, it's, it's one of the primary ways Jesus commanded for us to get to center on him. It's important. So we're going to ask this morning, what exactly is communion all about and how does it help us center on Jesus? And what we'll discover, it's, it's not just some bizarre, traditional, high church thing to do. Rather, it's an incredible powerful gift of God that we all get to enjoy in as we see who Jesus is and it's something that we at Oasis are committed to and to help us gain a greater understanding this morning I want us to exercise our imagination okay so I want you to put yourself in the shoes of one of Jesus' disciples so just for now just imagine you are not in Birmingham in 2014 you're actually in Jerusalem in around about AD 30 okay and um, you're one of Jesus' disciples let's say you're John why don't you just turn to the person next to you and say, Hi, I am John. Can you do that, Gwenny? Great. Right, now, now we all know each other. Um, great. Thanks, John, if I can... Thank you. Now, John, you find yourself upstairs in a room with your mates in Jesus, okay? AD 30-ish. And it's a moment described in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. It looks something like that. You can choose which one it is you. And uh, you're having a celebration together. And like all celebrations, it involves food. There's singing and there's food. There's roast lamb. It's fantastic. Everyone's talking, joking, singing, eating too much. It's a great celebration. Why? 
It's the Jewish Passover. Okay, this is a, a big deal. This is one of the biggest celebrations of the year, a bit like our Christmas. This is something that happens every year when the Jewish people remember how God rescued their ancestors out of Egypt. And so on the Passover evening, just as we're kind of using our imagination now to put ourselves in AD 30, so John and the rest of the disciples would have been imagining what would it have been like to have been at that first Passover, the events of the first Passover. You see, the scriptures give an account of how God rescued his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt around about 1,500 years before Jesus walked the earth. The Bible tells us that a number of plagues were brought upon the Egyptian pharaoh and his people to demonstrate the power of the almighty God. Okay, God is real. He is true. And in a very unique and unusual moment in time, he demonstrated that by doing a series, one after the other, of just incredible signs and wonders. Undeniable. They were essentially extremely localized and somewhat gruesome plagues sent upon the people of Egypt, like all the running water turning into blood. Okay? Um, you can read about it in the book of Exodus. You might say, well, why did God decide to do that? Well, these wonders were designed to catch the attention of the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And to be fair, I think if my bathwater turned into blood, I'd probably have my attention. Yeah, that's an unusual thing to happen. But the plagues were given to demonstrate to Pharaoh that actually he had been a plague upon the people of God. He'd been mistreating them and abusing them, not allowing them to worship the living God. And so God brings these signs and wonders to help Pharaoh to recognize who God is so that he might turn from that way and save his people from further calamity. But Pharaoh actually repeatedly ignored God, thinking himself to be God. Okay? He abused the Israelites all the more despite ongoing warnings as plague after plague came. And the last of these plagues was the worst, the death of the firstborn male of every family. The Bible explains that the angel of death would come and take the life of every firstborn member indiscriminately with one exception, okay? The Israelite households would be spared. They would be passed over if they took a perfect lamb, the best they could find, and sacrificed it. And the blood of that lamb was put on the doorposts of their houses. And the angel of death would see it and pass over. Why? Because the lamb would take the place of the sons of men. A sacrifice had been made to atone for them, and so the angel of death would pass over. And instead of death, there would be joy, the joy of freedom from slavery and a new life with God. That was an incredible moment in time, an incredible moment in history, at the center of the Jewish calendar. Okay, So the Passover celebration was great, and it happened every year. Hence John, in AD 30, eating lamb with Jesus, remembering all of that that had happened. And it would have been the best lamb you've ever had, because only the best lambs get used at that time. So really mouth-watering stuff, probably some mint sauce. Um, now, during this celebration, it was customary for the heads of the gathering to pass around a loaf of bread. It would be flat bread, no yeast, because that's exactly the type of bread that the Israelites ate when they left Egypt. So throughout this celebration, food is used to help them, to stimulate their imagination, to help them to remember what's happened before. And whenever the head of the gathering would get that piece of bread, he would always break it and offer it around to people and say these same words every time. He'd say, this is the bread of affliction which our forefathers ate. Okay, that would be what happens every year at Passover and it still does today. However, back in AD 30s when Jesus is in that upper room with John, you guys, and the rest of the disciples, 
when he took that bread, something very different happened that had never happened before. He said words which had never been spoken before and which grabbed everyone's attention. Okay, so this is where we go to Matthew 26 and verse 26. It tells us this, that Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. John does a double take. This is your what? He's forgotten his lines. Matthew continues, then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. Okay, he'd have poured it in, we'll pour some later. He said, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Suddenly, this Passover was taken on a whole different meaning. No longer about remembering God's rescue in the past. Jesus was making about something that was happening here and now, which was monumental and life-changing. And on hearing Jesus' words, John would have had ringing in his ears words that Jesus had also spoken around about one year before that event, AD 30, in the upper room. So let's whip back in time with John and turn with me then to John 6. Now in John 6, we again join John and the rest of the disciples listening to Jesus. What's the context? Food. Food is the context. Okay, just the day before, Jesus had gathered a crowd of over 5,000 people. We knew there were 5,000 men and there were women and children before. Commentators think around about 15,000. They had nothing to eat, and so Jesus took five loaves and two fish and multiplied them to be enough to feed everybody. Everybody ate. Everybody was full afterwards. There were leftovers, okay? And then the day after, these same people, as we join John, are coming to find Jesus because they want some more miraculous food. Can you blame them? They, they want some more bread. They're saying, Jesus, give us something, give us another miracle. Perhaps uh, manna from heaven, like what we see uh, in the scriptures that Moses and the Israelites ate. Give us some more miracle bread. But rather than meet their demands for bread, Jesus actually starts talking of a very different kind of food. So we'll join the scene in John 6, verse 26. This is quite a long section to read out. Please listen up. And it's on the screen, just in time. It says this, Jesus answered them, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, well, what miraculous sign will you give us that we might see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Give us more bread, give us more bread. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father who's given you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jump to verse 47. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Bit of a full-on passage. Okay? Flesh eating, blood drinking. Hard to swallow. Excuse the pun. I know, come on. That's for all you guys out there who like good puns. That was not a good pun. Um, But you see, these people had come to Jesus looking for food for their stomachs, like manna from heaven described in Exodus. Give us something incredible again, Jesus. And preferably, can we eat it? More miracle bread like they'd had the day before. They wanted to see another miracle. So in, in verse 32, when Jesus starts talking about the bread of God which comes down from heaven, they ask, can you give him some? As if he's going to pull out a steaming loaf for them. Like he's a, you know, a walking subway or something. But what Jesus was offering was food of a different type. Food to satisfy a much deeper, much truer hunger. See, these people had become so transfixed with their empty stomach that they'd overlooked their empty souls. See, Jesus was offering much more than a hot loaf. He was offering the very richest food, food for the soul, the bread of life, bread that can satisfy our deepest hungers, like the hunger for truth and the hunger for meaning and the hunger for peace and the hunger for love and the hunger for forgiveness and for security and to know that we're actually okay and the hunger for life. Hungers we all have, hungers which are unique to humans, actually. These people had tasted miracle bread but they didn't understand that there was a truer hunger far beyond their stomach now I'm a doctor which I know comes as a bit of a surprise every time you kind of find that out but it's true I am a doctor and I actually work um, half of my week at a busy hospital in the city and the other half I work for you guys at Oasis Um, and usually I'm on the admissions unit in hospital and I see loads of patients every day with lots of different problems many of whom are really really sick and one of the most common problems I encounter is hypoxia. Okay? Hypoxia is the term given to describe a, a lack of oxygen in the blood. Um, that's the type of ward that I work on. And it's, it looks a bit more modern than that does nowadays, actually. Um, lack of oxygen in the blood. People are starved of oxygen. There may be many causes for hypoxia. Could be a collapsed lung. Could be a, a chest infection. Could be heart failure could be asthma or smoke inhalation or emphysema lots of different causes same problem lack of oxygen the thing is though that your organs need oxygen okay so this is a biology lesson Um, and without it they can't survive so your muscles need it your heart needs it your gut needs it your brain needs it in fact if you starve your brain of oxygen pretty soon it doesn't start working right you get something called hypoxic confusion delirium i'm not talking about you just become really, really happy. Like, yes, the oxygen's gone. Woo! It's not that type of delirious. Um, no, no, you get confused and agitated and you just don't know where you are. I can think of several patients admitted recently with very low oxygen levels. You look at them and they're breathless, often blue lips, and terribly unsettled. And the first thing they need when I see them is oxygen, of course. Yet time and again, they refuse to allow anyone to put oxygen on them. If you try, they just fight you off. I can think of a lady who just again and again refused to put an oxygen mask on. She, just, she had desperately low levels of oxygen. 
and she just wouldn't let anyone do it. Again, we'd, we'd try, put some oxygen, put some oxygen on. She just wouldn't, she would just say, stop making such a fuss. I don't need your oxygen. Take your oxygen. She desperately needed it, but she wouldn't let anyone come anywhere near her with it. The tragedy is that right in front of her, she had immediate access to the very thing that her body so craved. The, the, the very thing her body was dying for, actually. The immediate cure was right there if she'd only receive it. Now, eventually, we managed to get some oxygen into her, and she settled right down, and everything became a bit clearer to her. Ravi Zacharias says this. He says, what oxygen is for the body, the bread of life is for the soul. It's essential for life. In fact, without it, all other hungers become distorted, and even our very hunger for that bread can become overlooked. It's like just the same way as a lack of oxygen can cause people to become so confused that they deny their need of oxygen. Lack of the bread of life leaves you to have just distorted hungers. You see, when people came to Jesus asking for bread, they had a distorted understanding of their most profound hunger. It wasn't for another breathtaking miracle, actually. And it wasn't for bread to fill their stomach. It was for the very bread of life that was before them. But the thing is, we can be like that too, can't we? Can't we? And we can chase after things which ultimately distract us from our truer, deeper hunger. We turn to all sorts of things and yet have this kind of nagging inside that we need more. We pursue nicer clothes or bigger houses or more money in the bank or more family gatherings or more success or more recognition or more sexual experiences or a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or just more. Soon we can find that we've actually centered our hopes on, on those things to bring us the security and the peace and the truth and the meaning that we need. And it's not that all of those things are necessarily bad, no. It's just that we've become so transfixed with them that our most profound hunger, the hunger of our souls for the bread of life, gets confused and unmet. You see, these other things will never satisfy our deepest hunger. Wealth won't, success won't, popularity won't. They're a bit like candy floss. They're all pink and fluffy. Looks good, you taste it, it's initially sweet, but actually it's melt away. Melts away. Doesn't satisfy. Doesn't fill any, anyone up. They can't fill up your souls. That's what Jesus is pointing out when he says, Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert and they died. People who were, lo- were looking for Jesus did, didn't, didn't understand their deepest need. See, the reality is that we are all of us hungry. We are hungry for security. We are hungry for truth. We are hungry for meaning and peace and love and forgiveness, acceptance and joy. And we are hungry for life. And the hunger is not bad. The hunger is good. You're right to be hungry for those things. But we try and satiate these hungers with whatever we can find. But in the end, they're powerless to quench the hunger that we have. It's like a persistent itch. No matter how long you scratch it, it keeps coming back. We want the bread for the soul. We want something that will fill us up. We have these hungers because deep down we know that they should be and they can be met. But so many of us live with this hunger frustrated and unsatisfied, aware that all is not well, living within a conflict. Why is that? It's because we are, in fact, broken. we just go back one slide. Again, Ravi Zacharias puts it like this. He says, We are, in fact, broken. We've broken away from God. 
we are broken in relation to our fellow human beings. And the most elusive reality is that we're broken even from ourselves. Life is a story of brokenness. We only have to look at our news to see, actually, no, that's true. We live in a pretty broken world. There's just conflict. There seems to be inner conflict everywhere. There seems to be conflict between man. We, we, We all perceive in moments, we don't necessarily always perceive it, but at moments, a sense of there's brokenness. This week was the Brit Awards, and uh, it's a night to celebrate and decorate the best music of the year. And uh, the winner of the Best British Breakthrough Act, which is a real tongue twister, um, don't say it quickly, is um, a band called Bastille. Now, Bastille are a really good band. If you haven't heard them, just check them out. They're brilliant. I really love them. They're great. Um, But, you know, it's been suggested that musicians are kind of like the philosophers of our time. You know, they're, they're the ones who in their lyrics represent what the masses feel, kind of more than kind of people in ivory towers nowadays. And that's why people turn to music to express their views and their emotions, particularly at particularly profound times. One of Bastille's most popular songs is a song called Flaws, and it has a repeated refrain running through it. They sing, there's a hole in my soul, I can't fill it, I can't fill it. There's a hole in my soul, can you fill it, can you fill it? One of our celebrated pop acts describing a deep sense of hunger which actually we all have at Christmas time a few years ago I was sitting in my living room with my granddad I love my granddad absolute hero like all granddads you know he had incredible stories to tell he'd often tell me the same stories again and again but I was happy to listen to them you know? I was really ha- he was a boxer so he'd often tell me about you know when he was sparring with one of his friends and he managed to get a good lucky punch in and a friend went through an asbestos wall, and I just didn't want to mess with Granddad after that moment. He was just a great guy, lots of um, medals from the war. Uh, but he was not the type of man to show his emotions. And he'd always been quite skeptical towards Christianity. But in the last few years of his life, he became more and more interested in Jesus. And we had, my Granddad and I, loads of just time together just to talk it through. And, He'd been to Gethsemane in the war, and he kind of wished he'd known something more at that point. On this occasion, when we sat in the living room, Grenda picked up a book that was on the side table, and it was a book, um, I think the title will come up, called um, The Life You've Always Wanted. It's actually a Christian book. I always get skeptical a bit of books with that type of title, because I think, well, really? Um, Is it just selling books? But anyway, it's called The The Life You've Always Wanted. It is a Christian book, but it, it was a great book. It's about developing intimacy with God and relationship with God. My granddad read the title and then read the blurb, and he actually turned to me and said, Mike, I'd, I'd really like to borrow this book. Do you mind, can I take this and read it? And it really took me by surprise, because there's a sense in which, there's a sense in which it was quite sad. Because it was like granddad, aged late 80s, saying, the life I currently have isn't what I've always wanted. There's kind of a lack of wholeness inside. And yet, on the other hand, it was a moment of great hope, because he was like, even now, there's the bread of life available to me. So he took the book and he read it. And, do you know what? I'm not entirely sure what happened in the end with that. Then Grenda died pretty soon afterwards. But at every moment, there's this sense of hunger, and at every moment, there's this offer to take something so good. You see, Grenda was expressing a desire that everyone lives with. If we'll only recognize it. I do, you do. The desire for satisfaction, for the oxygen of the soul, the bread of life. There's a hole in my soul. I can't fill it. I can't fill it. But here in John 6, Jesus is claiming that he can. He's saying he can. He offers us the bread of life. 
He doesn't just offer it though. He says that he himself is that bread. He says that's who he is. He's the one who can meet our needs, heal our brokenness, fill our souls with all that we desire. He's the one who can restore to us meaning and security and love and peace and knowledge of acceptance and life. The things that our souls hunger for, he can restore to us. But how, Jesus? By giving himself to us. It was going to be by giving himself to us. You see, in him is all fullness. In him is all wholeness. He is the fullness of truth. He is the fullness of love. He is the fullness of peace. He is the fullness of holiness and righteousness, actually. He is the fullness of life. He is the fullness of everything that our heart, soul desire. The Bible says in Colossians 2.9 that Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we've been given fullness in Christ. We were always created to have God at the center of our lives. This isn't a new Oasis Church 21st century thing. We're always created to enjoy the fullness of knowing God and of knowing acceptance by God and having our, our, our mind blown by the fact there is a God and he's amazing. And in giving himself to us, Jesus gives God to us. He is God, Emmanuel, God with us. And so God in all his fullness has been made available to us so that he can mend our brokenness. But how has he been made available to us? How can he mend our brokenness? It's because he was broken for us. He was poured out for us to give us his fullness. Let's go back again then to that upstairs room in the Passover celebration and your John. Let's remember what happened in that moment. Remember, Matthew tells us that Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying take and eat this is my body and then he took the he took the wine and he says this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins you see suddenly Jesus' words in John 6 become a lot more intelligible to John and to us when Jesus starts talking about flesh eating and drinking blood. See, in that, in that upstairs room, with that bread and with that cup, Jesus was visibly and tangibly demonstrating what was about to happen to him. He was about to be poured out. He was about to be broken. He, the perfect one, the sinless one, the one in whom is all fullness, he who is God in all his fullness, he was going to be broken. He was going to be poured out. That's what this meal was all about. Where would it happen? On the cross. Why would it happen? To make us whole. To make us whole. Jesus was to take on himself our brokenness so as to be our saviour. And in place of our brokenness, give us his wholeness so as to be our healer. He on the cross became for us the bread of life. That's what the bread and the juice represented. They still do. In Jesus is every good thing. In him is wholeness. And he has given himself to us so that we could be united in him. That's what he did on the cross. And three days later, he rose again. And he's alive to make himself available to us by the Spirit so we can feast on him 
and bring to him our brokenness and receive from him his wholeness. It's this great exchange. All I am for all you are. How do we take hold of him then? How do we take the bread of life? What exactly does Jesus mean when he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood? We take hold of him by faith. Jesus, when he talks about flesh eating and blood drinking, is not being literal. There's no cannibalism in Christianity, okay? Don't worry. He's talking about the position of our hearts. It's by faith, actually. do, Do you see him? Do you see him as he hangs on the cross for you, broken for you, and receive him for yourself? It's claiming him. It's placing our hope in him. It's placing our trust in him. It's receiving him as your savior, as the oxygen for your soul, as the bread of life. It's resting your confidence in him, his death and in his resurrection. And guys, this is not a one-off act. It's not something you do in a moment in time, then move on from. This isn't praying the prayer, whatever that means. This is a continual lifestyle of centering on him, of saying, actually, the bread of life will be at the center of my life and all of my hope will be on him for he alone can mend my brokenness and he alone can bring me fullness it's a lifestyle so where does breaking bread and pouring wine come into this well this is the physical outward expression of what happens inside in our hearts this is the physical outward expression of the position of our hearts You see, Jesus invites us all to the same table. He offers us the same bread and the same cup that he offered his disciples. And in taking communion, we show outwardly that we receive him inwardly in our hearts. And so the reason why I think communion is such good news is because it it joins our senses to our faith. I don't know about you. I sometimes find it really difficult to believe in what I can't see. Can't see God. Can't see Jesus. How do I know he's there? Jesus understands that. He's giving us many expressions to physically demonstrate what we do inwardly with our unseen faith, which is to take him in. And so when we, when we take the bread in our hand and we break it, we demonstrate that he was broken for us. When we take the juice and we pour it, we demonstrate physically that he was poured out for us. It's a physical moment to demonstrate what's going on what's happened and then when we take the cup and we take the bread we say yes I receive him in by faith and he has my brokenness and I have his fullness and we unite ourselves to him so the sacraments are so important they're they're designed to help our faith it's not that we're saying suddenly this is God this is Jesus literal body his literal blood no 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 no. I got this from Sainsbury's it was on the it was on the shop stall and, and few days ago no 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 it's by faith we understand that all that's happened has happened Jesus is at the right hand of God in heaven and he's given us the bread and the cup to demonstrate what he has done for us and to demonstrate we receive it yes we say yes to you Jesus and so it is a spiritual moment it is a profound centering moment it is a really significant moment we must do it regularly at Oasis Church, in our small groups, when we gather, you don't need permission to do it. Jesus has said, just do it regularly. It's a moment to center on him, to say all of my brokenness for all of your fullness. So in a moment, we're going to take it. And it's a moment just to be honest and to say, am I centering on Jesus? Am I? 
Is it, you know, it, it's a moment to say, what, where's the position of my heart at the moment? Are there other areas you've gone for for satisfaction, which actually only he can meet? If that's you this morning, you just need to say sorry. You need to be open with Jesus about it, not hide it, and repent and say, actually, I want this fullness, all that you've done for me. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I'm not a Christian. Maybe you want to be. If you want Jesus, you have Jesus. You can't want him without having him. He always, always is ready to meet our desire for him. So if today you want to say, actually, I've broken, I want to receive his wholeness and move on with him at the center, then I'd invite you to take communion this morning as an expression of your faith. And then come and see me afterwards, and I'd love to pray with you and to talk through how that works. And the final point is, communion is always something we do in community. You never take it on your own. When we offer the bread and the cup to each other, we demonstrate our unity with each other. All the barriers come crashing down. We eat the same bread. We drink the same cup. We are all equally broken in need of fixing. Some of us are better at hiding it than others. We have the same Savior. He offers himself the bread of life. So we do this together do this together this is about us being a body joined in Christ Jesus and it's a celebration you know it is a celebration of wholeness it's not a drib and drab better take the the wine and the juice it's I'm whole in him I take hold of it by faith and I move on in that direction so we're going to take we're going to take the bread and the juice now and there are some people who have been asked to help us with that to to administer it so if you go to the tables now that'd be brilliant what I'd like everyone to do is just to stand up Let's get some blood flowing. In a moment, I just, we're just going to invite you, and there's no pressure to do this, and no one's going to be looking at anyone or anything. But if you want to say, yes, I want Jesus, I want him, I want his fullness, and to give him my brokenness, then I'd invite you just to go and take the bread and take the juice, and then we'll have it together. But before we do that, why don't we just take a moment just to center on him? Why don't you just close your eyes? Maybe there's something you want to say to Jesus before you do that. If, you are, if you'd say, I'm not a Christian, I'd love to be, then I'm just going to pray something that you can echo in your heart, which will just help, help you as you approach the table. And then we'll go and take it. Lord Jesus, I see that you are God and that in you is all fullness and I see that I was designed to be in relationship with God and yet I have become broken pulled away thank you that you came to give me the bread of life which is you yourself and that in you I can know fullness again Jesus come in As I take the bread and the juice, may that be a moment of saying yes to you in all that you have. And Jesus, I pray for everyone who's here who just wants more of you, that they would, even in this moment, make it not just a, we better do this moment, but a profound moment of centering on you, of enjoying who you are. Amen. Amen. Why don't you go and make your way to the table. Is there some, there's a table here, there's a table at the back, there's a table at the back here, table here. And um, just go and grab some juice, grab some bread, perhaps get into some groups and share it together. And as you do it, recognize that Jesus is yours. He's yours. And then just we'll close the meeting there. It's about three minutes until kids need picking up. So 
Um, some of you have to eat quicker than others. <laughs> All right, thanks very much. Let's do that.